when I sat down to plan and to put this uh, session together, it struck me pretty quickly that in order to provide sufficient coverage and do the opening scene some justice, um, there was going to be quite a lot of me talking to you. I hope it's more of that uh, as opposed to me talking at you. Okay. That said, if there are at any point things that are unclear, if you want me to repeat something, if you have a question to ask, please don't be shy. Okay. Ultimately, you know, this is a school, and whilst this session might be more in the style of something that you will experience in years to come as undergraduates, it's more of a lecture than a than a talk uh, than a than a lesson rather. I don't want this to be a passive experience for you. Okay, so with that in mind, there are two or three moments within what I've prepared where I will stop, I'll pause, and just give you a chance to uh, decompress, to reflect on one or two of the things I've just said, to look ahead at uh, one or two things that I'm going to be talking about, and if questions arise at that point, then you will be able to, to ask them then. Okay? The brief is very simply um, a treatment of Act 1, Scene 1 of Othello. So I'm hoping that you have read that. I mean, those of you obviously doing A-level will have done. Uh, and I, I'm just going to assume certain things in order to get started. Okay? And one of those is the assumption that you, you have a vague idea of what happens in that first scene. And there are three themes to my talk, which will become evident to you. And can you just... Make sure you've got a copy of this little handout. The little extracts and the pieces of language that I talk about within the three themes of my lecture, if you like, or my talk today, are included on this page. So you need this page. This is essential for you today. You don't need anything else, although if you have a copy of the text in front of you, that would be great as well. So, Othello, written probably late 1601, early 1602 commonly accepted as having been per first performed about 1603 or 4 according to E.A.J. Honigman who also suggests that Othello contains the best plot two of his most original characters the most powerful scene in any of his plays not to mention verse of the most exquisite beauty surely it qualifies therefore as the most exciting of Shakespeare's tragedies and why then might we not consider it therefore his greatest? Drawn from a novella in Gerardi Cynthia's Hectomythy, written in about 1565, Othello follows Cynthia's original narrative in so much detail that it is fair to argue that Cynthia guides the crucial events of Shakespeare's play. Hecatomythy is a collection of ten short stories, each of which deals with married love, and the seventh chronicles the fortunes of a Moorish captain and his Venetian wife. It deals with a husband's revenge for supposed adultery and the wife's accidental death. For further details on this and some helpful cross-references between Cynthia's narrative and Shakespeare's text, the Arden edition, uh, from which I draw, is very, very helpful and should be your first port of call. I think by the look of it you've got different editions, but um, the Arden is particularly good on this point. A.C. Bradley describes Othello as a tragedy of passion, and more particularly of sexual jealousy rising to the pitch of passion. 
In his view, there can be hardly any spectacle at once so engrossing and so painful as that of a great nature suffering the torment of this passion and driven by it to a crime which is also a hideous blunder. And this gives us our first area for examination in this close reading of Act 1, Scene 1, and that is sexual jealousy and tension. Much of Iago's provocation in this scene employs sexual imagery and the power of crude suggestion to arouse, no pun intended, the response he desires. That he also plays upon a father's protective instincts makes this tension all the more delicious for the audience, of course. But more importantly, it foregrounds the matter of sex and sexual propriety as one of paramount importance to the plot and to later events. Another of the great 20th century Shakespearean scholars, G. Wilson Knight, presents to us the idea... Second, that Othello is also a story of intrigue. In his eyes, much of this intrigue lies in what he calls the Othello music. Poetic artistry of such profound beauty, rich in sound and phrase, and stately even. Of course, we don't meet Othello until Act 1, Scene 2, but we do meet his opposite, his nemesis, Iago, at the very beginning of the play. Whereas Othello is fantastical, in both his character and in his speech, sentimental in his motivation, Iago is, as Wilson has it, pure cynicism. Logically, the cynic must oppose the sentimentalist. Dramatically, he works his ruin by deceit and deception, which is, of course, what Iago does to poor, foolish, defenceless Rodrigo, starting in the very first scene. Again, this element of the plot isn't just dramatic colour, it's an important precursor to what follows. Iago sets about destroying Rodrigo and Brabantio in this scene through intrigue, deceit and deception, giving us our second theme in this treatment of the opening scene. So our third theme is that of the monster and the monstrous. The word monster appears six times throughout the text in a variety of contexts. The adjective monstrous appears seven times. Most famously, of course, it is Iago's metaphor of choice in Act 3, Scene 3, when he implores Othello not to fall foul of jealousy. But the monsters that are present in the play are not necessarily the obvious entities directly referred to by the characters, nor are they even the most pernicious and dangerous. Bradley casts Iago in the following manner. Evil has nowhere else been portrayed with such mastery as in the character of Iago. He hates good simply because it is good, and loves evil purely for itself. This is abundantly evident throughout the text, of course, but in this opening scene we shall see how Iago constructs monsters in the minds of both his victims, and in so doing sets each of them on a path to misery, ruination and death. A brief word on what follows here. Your exam assessments, those of you doing A-level, will focus on A1, 2, 3 and 5. That's those of you doing the A-level. That is, argument, closer reading, contextual factors and existing critical views. Okay? So my focus here today is largely A01 and A02. So in other words, um, with a flavour of the other two as we go along, as without these our experience and understanding is all the poorer. But the, the focus is very much an interpretation of this first scene and the accompanying close reading that supports it. And I hope that what you will find as I go through are, is, a, is essentially an extended exemplar of good practice for you in terms of constructing an argument, constructing an interpretation of what we read, and then being able to back it up. 
So as I explore each of these arguments now, I wonder if you might be able to annotate the pages given to you, noted the critical ideas and key readings I give to you. So to our first reading, that is, much of the excitement that comes from this opening comes from the sexual tension, particularly in Iago's language, and the emerging significance of sexual jealousy to the plot. And as I promised... I won't be talking at you for the whole time. So this is the first little 60-second pause where I'm going to give you a moment now just to look at the gobbets of text that I've given you on that first page and see if you can start to see where any of these ideas emerge of sexual tension and jealousy before I launch into, into my reading. So 60 seconds on your own or with a person sat next to you, feel free to chat about it. Okay? All right, let's, let's carry on. So it is worth noting that all of our characters here are male. They speak of a union, of course, when they're talking about sex, that is, the union between a man and a woman. Inevitably, given the the, uh, marginal status of women at this time, they were little more than possessions, really, traded from father to chosen husband for familial gain, usually. There is also a sort of coarsely misogynistic tone to much of what Iago especially has to say. However, we will not be totally attentive to these uh, moments, as Othello is also subject to the same reduction and diminution, and he is no woman. Iago's first reference to sex and sexual politics, therefore, is a fairly mild one, in fact, and it refers to Cassio, where he says uh, very early on in the text, he is a fallow, almost damned in a fair wife. There's some editorial um, confusion about this line. It doesn't necessarily seem to fit, because it speaks of Cassio having a wife, (laughs) but actually it serves the plot better for Cassio to be unmarried, as I'm sure you will come across later on. But it's fair to read this line as saying that Cassio, this fellow, is weakened by the sight of any good-looking woman. A reference, of course, to a woman's physical attributes, as if they weaken him to the point of impotence. Not sexual, in an immediate sense, but amongst the bawdy nature of his chat, there is also the implication that his masculinity is compromised or undermined by the sight of a pretty woman. Don't forget that an unmarried Cassio, I've already said, is more, than help- is more helpful to Shakespeare but it's also alluding to Cassio's relationship with Bianca later on, which Iago uses to his own ends. The issue of Cassio's suitability for the post he has been given and whether or not he is a man is not our chief concern. And so we move on, having had one important principle established here, and that is Iago's antenna are finely tuned to matters of sex and sexual politics. What follows, however, is an astonishing attack containing shocking and appalling allusions to the sexual union that he wants Brabantio to imagine between his daughter and Othello. So we move forward to line 84, which is the second little bit of text on your page there. Line 84 to 91. Zone, sir, you're robbed. For shame, put on your gown. Your heart is burst, you have lost half your soul, because even now, now, very now, an old black ram is tupping your white you. Ha! Arise, arise, awake the snorting citizens with the bell, or else the devil will make a grandsire of you. Arise, I say. So there you have. That's really the first time Othello gets into full stride. So that line in 87 and 88, even now, now, very now, an old black ram is tapping your white you. From the ascending tricolon of now, 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 made all the more dramatic by the intensifier of very, there's a sense of building tension. Not only has Brabantio been robbed, 
it's happened under his nose without him even realising and it's happening right now and as if things can get worse the image that Iago now draws is one that repulses and shocks Brabantio the monosyllabic old black ram contains not only the power of the punch to the solar plexus but it also presents one of the most dreadful images of pollution and infection as it is tupping yours or Brabantio's white you. the monosyllabic word choices here have power as we've already said and the disyllabic tupping jolts the listener with its dental T's and plosive P's you can imagine Iago's delight as he offers this crude and upsetting assessment of what is happening to Brabantio's daughter and let's make no bones about it it's happening to her she is passive she is the recipient the object of the tupping and this is the version that we have commented on here the vision that we have commented on here the emotional impact on Brabantio is enormous as you might imagine and the concomitant issues of miscegenation or what Ridley called the horror of a mixed race alliance would have added insult to injury for Brabantio after all she is his as shown in the use of the possessive you let's be clear here Iago is implying nay even accusing Brabantio suggesting that it's his fault and Iago is set on pointing this out to him so let's move on to line 88 and eight, uh, to 90. Arise, arise, awake the snorting citizens with the bell, or else the devil will make a grandsire of you. Iago's work is not done, of course. The repetition of arise, as well as being a call to action, would undoubtedly be deployed as another gratuitous pun by Iago, and the potential for comic interpretation for the actor takes little by way of imagination here. But it is the second image of the following sentence uh, that chills the audience and further drives Brabantio to despair. By referring to Othello as the devil... Iago is not only suggesting that Othello's motive and means are entirely evil, but he is continuing to play on the Elizabethan and the Venetian fear of the black man, or more particularly, the other. Imagine Venetian squeamishness at the conquest of one of its young, titled women by a much older black soldier, and magnify it several times over to get a sense of how an audience in London at this time might have responded. Iago's masterstroke, however, is to call Brabantio grandsire. In so doing he not only casts Brabantio's mind forward to a time when he will not be able to escape this uh, fact as there will be young children, Othello's children, running around his home. But he goads Brabantio as well by suggesting that he was powerless to stop this abomination from taking place in the first instance. Iago goes on of course and his portrayal of Othello as an animal, a Barbary horse to be precise, is plain vindictiveness. And its connotations are easy to see. So we move on to that third goblet of text on your page there, lines 108 to 115. Zounds, sir, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bid you. Because we come to do you service and you think we are ruffians, you'll have your daughter covered with a barbary horse. You'll have your nephews neigh to you. You'll have courses for cousins and genets for Germans. What profane wretch art thou? I am one, sir, that comes to tell you your daughter and the more I'm now making the beast with two backs. Now... 
I'll leave you to consider why Iago describes the offspring of this union as courses and genets who will neigh to Brabantio. It doesn't take a literary genius to discern the rampant and boundless racism in this inference. But we should not leave this moment without noting one moment of supreme wordplay. And it's found in this sentence, because you think we are ruffians, you'll have your daughter covered with a Barbary horse. Now, of most interest here is the use of the verb covered. In the equine world in particular, to cover is the word used to describe the act of copulation between a stallion and a mare. And here Iago uses that word to describe what is taking place between Othello and Desdemona. The implication, as we've already seen, are shocking. But it's the utterly shameless delight that Iago takes in using this kind of language that is most revealing. The damage to Brabantio's state of mind and to his reputation, not to mention Desdemona's, of course, is done. This is sheer malice, sheer malice on Iago's part. He has no need to carry on, and yet he does. And if we are to see this as tragedy of sexual jealousy rising to the point of passion, might this be the moment where the audience discerns within Iago a more personal investment in these allegations than we first thought? Maybe, maybe it's he who bears jealousy towards Othello for the conquest he has made in taking Desdemona from Brabantio. There's more. As if that wasn't enough. And I want you to note the progression in the ideas as I summarise them here. What profane wretch art thou? I am one, sir, that comes to tell you that your daughter and the moor are now making the beast with two backs. One of the, probably one of the most famous lines in the whole play. So, note, so these are the ideas, and I want you to note the progression. Number one, it's not enough for you to suggest that Desdemona has been taken from Brabantia. Two, it's not even enough for him to suggest that she has been taken by someone who has only sexual satisfaction on his mind. Three, it's not even enough for Iago to suggest that this evil uh, will infect and pollute Brabantio's house and his reputation. Four, it's not even enough for Iago to suggest that Othello's motive for this is purely malicious. He now goes on to suggest that actually Desdemona has played a full part in this whole scheme. That she wasn't taken against her will after all, nor that is she a victim in all this, but she desires it for herself. Note the order of the phrase, your daughter and the more. She comes first, again no pun intended, and not the more. She leads the act, as it were. And this is reinforced by the image, not of a ram tapping a ewe this time, but of a beast with two backs. They are both party to the scheme. She has, therefore, deceived her father. And this idea of doubleness, of duplicity, is ironic, of course, as they have done something very different in reality. But this is indicative of Iago's approach and his style. And that mention of doubleness, the idea of the two, of course, leads us nicely to our second theme, that of intrigue, of the page of deceit and deception so again this is another little pause I'm going to stop speaking for about 60 seconds or so now Uh, time for you to reflect if you want to have a chat with your neighbour about something have a look at these bits of text now under the second heading and just reflect on where I might be taking this argument so a little 60 seconds or so break for you Okay, so let's move on 
So we've already seen that the Argo's purpose is almost entirely to cause disruption and chaos. His is an entirely destructive vision, a, a sort of a scorched earth policy, if you will. And this is evident from the very first moment when Rodrigo takes issue with his apparent lack of honesty. Of course, he's right, but Iago establishes an important pattern right at the beginning of the play. When faced with difficulty, lie. When he needs to progress his schemes, lie. Let's have a look at the opening seven lines. Tush, tush, never tell me, I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who hast my purse, as if the strings were thine, should know of this. God's blood, you're not listening to me, you'll not hear me. If ever I did dream of such a matter, abhor me. Thou told me, thou didst hold him in thy hate. Despise me if I do not. Essentially, um, we begin this scene in media race, in the middle of things. Uh, and there's much that the audience picks up very quickly as the narrative progresses. But essentially, they've happened across Brabantio's house here together. And Rodrigo has found out for the first time that Othello and Desdemona have eloped to be married. And he has turned round to Iago and he said, Why didn't you tell me this before? You're supposed to be on my, you're supposed to be helping me. How did you not know this? How did you not tell me? Are you actually helping me or not? And he says, Look, if I yeah, if I give you any reasons of course to think that I love Othello, you can get rid of me. Literally do away with me. And this is how we open the play. Iago's next utterance is quite interesting and bears closer examination. So let's pick this up at line 7. Three great ones of the city, in personal suit to make me his lieutenant, off capped to him, and by the faith of a man I know my price, I am worth no worse a place. But he, as loving his own pride and purposes, evades them with a bombast circumstance, horribly stuffed with epithets of war, and in conclusion, none suits my mediators. Here, Iago tells Rodrigo that three great men, note the adjective great, which acts as an intensifier to imbue his words with credibility, went to Othello and begged him to make Iago his lieutenant. Othello, out of loving his own pride and purposes, refused. Note here the alliterative P within the hendiadis of pride and purpose. Ostensibly, Iago is demeaning Othello as proud and short-sighted, made blind by his duty to military rigmarole and to form. There is subtlety here too, though. Shakespeare uses this technique of hendiadis, uh, and just to clarify, I'm not sure what hendiadis is, literally the pairing of two, usually nouns, or two things. So pride, and, you know, pride here and purpose. You know, Elgar's uh, concerto, uh, pomp and circumstance. You know, hard and fast. To go back to the uh, sexual illusions earlier, there you go. There's Hendiadis for you. Real, really common, purposeful um, device that Shakespeare uses, although not as much as in Hamlet. And he uses Hendiadis frequently in Othello. It's a favoured device, appropriately enough for a play about duplicity and de- deceit, of course, as it has two parts to it. In aligning pride and purpose, he is achieving two things. He's discrediting Othello as one who is too proud and stuck in his ways. He is also laying the ground for his longer disavowal of Othello at lines 40 to 64, more of which in a moment. So he is essentially suggesting that only the proud bear in mind their duty and their purpose. Othello, whose pride does not allow him to think in any other way, is therefore a fool and one to be despised. 
Iago then goes on to say that Othello refused because he had already filled the vacancy with Cassio, a man who knows nothing about war, nothing but theory from books, mere prattle, a word more commonly used to describe the kind of idle chatter indulged in by old women, and he then completes his assassination of Cassio's character, and by the extension therefore Othello, by describing Cassio as a mathematician, an accountant, one who is only good for keeping the books. Of course, Iago deserved to serve over Cassio, having served with Othello for some time, and he has fought by his side. But the old-fashioned gradations are now defunct, as Iago presents them here. These things don't go to those who are deserving anymore. No, 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 they go to old friends and old preferences. And so, of course, Rodrigo believes Iago to be on his side, because Iago has, for want of a better phrase, beef himself with Othello. But when you stop and look, what of this whole account that we've just discussed, how much of that is actually true? What can we discern amidst all that to be reliable and factual? In truth, very little. In fact, the only thing that is absolutely certain is that Othello did appoint Cassio. Nothing else is certain at all. None of it. We have only Iago's word, and that, as we already know, is as false as, to borrow a phrase from later in the play, water. But our main source of interest here lies, as I've already alluded, in lines 40 to 64, which you can find on that second page. Oh, sir, content you. I follow him to serve my turn upon him. We cannot all be masters, nor all masters cannot be truly followed. You shall mark many a duteous and knee-crooking knave that, doting on his own obsequious bondage, wears out his time much like his master's ass for naught but provender, and when he's old, cashiered. Whip me such honest knaves. Others there are who, trimmed in forms and visages of duty, keep yet their hearts attending on themselves, and, throwing but shows of service on their lords, do well thrive by them, and, when they have lined their coats, do themselves homage. These fellows have some soul, and such a one do I profess myself. For, sir, it is as sure as you are Rodrigo. Were I the more, I would not be Iago. In following him I follow but myself. Heaven is my judge, not I for love and duty, but seeming so, for my peculiar end. For when my outward action doth demonstrate the native act and figure of my heart in compliments extern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for doors to peck at. (laughs) I am not what I am. Now, Ostensibly, this is a sustained and articulate rejection of any loyalty or any fealty whatsoever to Othello. In essence, Iago is ingratiating himself to Rodrigo in order to reassure him that their scheme to unite Rodrigo with Desdemona is still Iago's priority. But, as I read those lines, I want you to imagine that Iago speaks not of his relationship with Othello but in fact of his relationship with Rodrigo himself. A few highlights for you. Line 41. And remember here, 
we are looking at this whole speech as if it is Iago speaking not about Othello, but about Rodrigo. I follow him to serve my turn upon him. Note the ironic pun on serve here. Instead of serving, Iago's intention is to turn upon him. Whether he's talking about Othello or Rodrigo, this is barefaced malignancy at its most obvious. Line 42 and 43. We cannot all be masters, nor all masters cannot be truly followed. As always with Iago, there are two sides to this particular coin. And the palindromic effect of reversing the idea of master and follower is typical of both Iago and, more broadly, Shakespeare. There is, if you like, added added fission here with the use of the adverb truly, as well as highlighting the entirely pragmatic and expedient view that Iago has of truth itself. It highlights the fundamental role that truth will play in the rest of the plot, and in particular, it alerts the audience to the fact that Iago will appear to be a great support and servant to a range of characters, all of whom eventually he will turn on. I've chosen to gloss over lines 43 to 48 here in the interest of saving time, but in these lines, Iago's wordplay are a current feature, and his choice of imagery paints a picture of duty as essentially stupidity. Garnished with a lovely simile, comparing the servant to a donkey, or the master's ass. It's clear that he holds no truck at all with the idea of service. Lines 49 to 57 are much more instructive, however, as we attempt to uncover the real Iago. So let's look at lines 48 to 50 now. Others there are, just with this in front of me, 48 to 50, others there are who, trimmed in forms and visages of duty, keep yet their hearts attending on themselves. Now this long sentence, more on that in a moment, is dominated by the lovely metaphor of being trimmed. Of course, this has connotations of superficiality. It only covers the smallest part. It's only the edge that is shown, etc., etc. But the image is strengthened by another example of hendiadus, forms and visages. The word form itself means shape, neatly alerting the audience to the superficiality of the service being offered by uh, Iago. It only seems that duty is being affected. A man's actions can say one thing whilst his mind and motivation lie elsewhere. Truly, the irony here is palpable. Visage is, of course, the French for face. And so, again, our gaze is taken away from the internal or the mind or even the heart and it alights on the face. And the face is where we show most of our emotion. It is the chief area means by which we express emotion. But emotion is, of course, temporary and fleeting. And so, too, is Iago's promise of service. As he moves on the heat simply uh, sorry as he moves on to the heart simply a metaphor for the reality of a man's motivation and intention he uses the verb attending calling to mind similar words like attentive and even present to show that his real desire is to only invest in his own future his own desires and his own schemes so as the audience starts to squirm and recoil from this naked self-interest, of course, Iago belittles Rodrigo even further by making it clear that he will also profit financially whilst he's doing all this. When they have lined their coats. Line 52. Again, the punning and the double entendre is significant here. Remember Rodrigo's opening words made reference to Iago having my purse as if the strings were thine? Remember that moment? 
And this offers further evidence, of course, that Iago is not so much disavowing himself from Othello's services, but Rodrigo's, in fact. He, of course, is clueless in all this, and is set up immediately as Iago's dupe, a role he is destined to play for the entirety of his existence in the narrative. Iago's malicious enjoyment of the situation shows no sign of abating here, though. So convinced is he of his superiority, he tells Rodrigo that he is a trickster, a fraud, and a cheat to his face. Such a one do I profess myself. And there follows another masterly piece of trickery and linguistic bedazzlement, as if Rodrigo wasn't already confused enough. It is as sure as you are, Rodrigo. Were I the more, I would not be Iago. His premise here is self-evident. If I was Othello, I wouldn't be Iago. It's not exactly logically complex, is it? As arguments go. But Rodrigo is entirely taken in by this dexterity and duplicity. Taking this to mean that were I for the more, I would not be Iago. One wonders, of course, whether his meaning is the same the other way round in an attempt to reassure Rodrigo. In other words... Were I the more, I would not be for Iago. Either way, the effect is clear. Rodrigo is confused, intrigue abounds, and Iago continues to toy with him. Moving on quickly to line 57. In following him, I follow but myself. This is, of course, a logical impossibility. The audience understands following as an absolute term, despite Iago's assertion to the contrary earlier in the scene. But, yet again, the wordplay here is designed to obfuscate and to confuse, not to clarify and to reassure. If we substitute in Rodrigo for Othello, it is as Iago is repeatedly declaring his own disloyalty to Rodrigo, who remains oblivious indeed. The audience begins to grow frustrated with Rodrigo as we grow to revile Iago. And the climax of all this intrigue... The only truth, ironically, that Iago speaks in this, in this whole speech is those last few words, I am not what I am. The meaning of the phrase is quite clear. What he's saying is that I am not what I appear to be. Whether that's a reference to his relationship to Othello, his relationship to Rodrigo, or even in terms of his scheme to provoke Brabantio, all options seem open. The intrigue is obvious and inescapable, acting as prolepsis for the rest of the play, and Iago's role in everything that is to follow. Linguistically, however, there is a noteworthy allusion to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God declares to Moses, I am what I am. And later on in the New Testament, Paul declares to his readers in the first uh, letter to Corinthians that he too is the same by God's grace. The subtle inversion here is striking. I am not what I am seems therefore to align Iago with the devil rather than with God by virtue of the inversion of meaning. Even if Rodrigo has no idea what is going on, Iago is very clear and the audience has been alerted in no uncertain terms as to the nature of Iago's character as one whose interests are purely selfish, malicious and increasingly monstrous. And so we move to our third and final theme. Again, you'll find the text on, this, on the third page of a little booklet. I'm just going to give a little break for 60 seconds to reflect, have a little think, rest your minds, and we'll pick things up in 60 seconds. Here we go. Everyone all right? Thank you very much for your attention so far. You're doing a fantastic job. Stay with it. Just on the, on, on the home straight now, on this third uh, element of it. So let us turn our attention to Monsters.
and the monstrous. By this point, the audience has espied very clearly the monster in their midst, and we're convinced of his malice and his malevolence. But what makes Iago so terrifying from a dramatic point of view is that he is hiding in plain sight. Inasmuch as he has fooled Rodrigo so completely, and even told him face to face that he's not to be trusted, without Rodrigo even realising, the excitement of the scene is exacerbated still further by the openness of his treachery. Frank Commode, arguably the most influential of the late 20th century Shakespearean scholars, sees this whole opening scene in terms of Cherivari. Cherivari was an old custom. If you disapproved of a match in some way, a marriage, for instance, if you deplored a disparity in age or in colour, poignantly, between bride and groom, you could call up your neighbours and then go and make a disturbance outside their house. So Iago uses the, the noise of the Cherivari, uh, which is called, you know, which literally translates as rough music. Note the contrast with the Othello music of G. Wilson Knight in my previous point, to his own ends. In the passage before they start making a, a, a row, whilst he and Rodrigo are still whispering in the street, we can see the violence of Iago's emotion and the violence of his intent as well. If I don't hate Othello, abhor me, despise me. Those two verbs there. Now, at this point, the audience is alerted to the, to the depth of feeling both within the word choice and by the repeated use of the imperative. To abhor means literally to cast something or to some, someone out, whereas to despise uh, has, uh, contains uh, and carries connotations of um, being looked down on from a position that is superior in, sort of in human and moral terms. You might even suggest, as Commode does, that Iago is aware of his own foulness, he is aware of his own monstrous nature, and these are therefore the proper reactions that one should have to him. We've already touched on the um, abandon and the, and the pleasure that Iago takes in tormenting Brabantio with the sexual insults he employs in the scene, but we haven't yet touched on that which makes them monstrous. So let's return to line. What's uh, what are we giving you here? Line. 86 to 88. Even now, now, very now, an old black ram is tupping your white you. This is Iago's way of telling the senator that his daughter has eloped, but the conflation of her absence with the primal and the animalistic intent shown in the staccato movement from word to word makes the act itself seem like a monstrosity. This idea is then picked up, as we've already seen, in the unearthly image of a beast with two backs. Quite aside from the plosive alliteration, which uh, lends the image a sort of an uncontrollable and an unrestrained quality, the otherworldliness of a creature that has two backs appalls and terrifies the audience. The monstrosity that Iago creates in this moment is not only that of Desdemona being ravaged by Othello, but also it is the the readiness of Iago to deploy such foul and monstrous language in the first place. And the idea that a monster is being unleashed is also evident in Rodrigo's lines from 131 to 135. Let's just have a quick look at those. Your daughter, if you have not given her leave, I say again, hath made a gross revolt, tying her duty, beauty, wit and fortunes in an extravagant and wheeling stranger of here and everywhere. 
Hitherto, Rodrigo has been submissive and quite restrained, actually, compromised as he is by the fact that his identity is known to Brabantio. Iago, of course, has no such compunction, so he shows no inhibition whatsoever. However, at this point, Rodrigo seems to be emboldened. His tone becomes more confident, and his linguistic range broadens to include, for the first time, the figurative, and therefore the provocative. So line 31 and 2 reads, Your daughter, if you have not given her leave, I say again, hath made a gross revolt. And the use of the adjective gross here is double-edged. Of course it is. (laughs) Suggesting, as it does, something huge and great in its significance, but also something disgusting, something revolting, and yes, of course, monstrous. Rodrigo follows this up by articulating exactly what it is that he, and therefore all of Venetian society, would have found most monstrous of all. And that's found in line 133 to 135. Tying her duty, beauty, wit and fortunes in an extravagant and wheeling stranger of here and everywhere. For Rodrigo, it's not enough that Desdemona has eloped without her father's knowledge or consent. It is that she has performed an irrevocable act, one that cannot be undone, in tying, note the use of the verb tying, tying herself to Othello. She has rejected the life that her father would have chosen for her, and in so doing, her duty, beauty, wit and fortunes have also been forfeited. There is a lot going on here. She has firstly reneged on her responsibilities to her father, to be a dutiful and obedient daughter. Secondly, she has wasted her beauty on an old black ram, instead of using it for the furtherance of the family name and fortune, not to mention the fact that she could have had the pick of the Venetian gentry. Thirdly, she has made a decision that, in Rodrigo's eyes, is nonsensical, one that suggests that her wit, her intellect, has failed her entirely. And fourthly, as if that were not enough, she has condemned herself to a life without any of the advantages and satisfactions that might have come from any arrangement made by her father. Quite clearly then, given the gathering uh, and the intensifying of the tricolon duty, beauty and wit, and the tethering of this tricolon to the hendiadis, there it is again, wit and fortune, Rodrigo feels strongly about this. Strongly enough to speak with real passion from the street in the middle of the night. In the spirit of excess and laying it on thick, however, Rodrigo isn't finished. As if all that wasn't enough for Brabantio, he closes this part of his description with a uh, a reference that marks Othello out as an outsider, as the other, or in other words, a monster in his own right. An extravagant and wheeling stranger in line 134. Obviously, the use of the word stranger speaks of one whom is not known to Brabantio until now. But more importantly, it speaks of the deception that Othello has brought on Brabantio, or wrought on Brabantio rather, by taking his daughter from him. As we shall discover later on, Othello and Brabantio were close friends and acquaintances. You might go so far as to say that Brabantio was actually Othello's patron when he first came to Venice. But that trust has been betrayed in Rodrigo's eyes. And this is monstrous. The pairing, again with the pairs and the doubling, yet again, it's been a recurrent theme all the evening, hasn't it, of extravagance and wheeling, paints Othello as nothing more than a sort of travelling salesman, if you like, or a tinker even. One of no definite place, bound to move on from place to place. Extravagant here means a vagrant, someone from another place, whilst wheeling also has connotations of movement from place to place as well, uh, uh, and an instability that comes from such a life. 
It's also not impossible that as Rodrigo says this, the audience also hears the word wheedling, as well as wheeling, meaning flattering, a further slight on Othello's reputation and integrity, as if he had achieved his designs through deceit and false speaking. Monstrous indeed. The final point I want to make here is one that also has significance for the rest of the play. Once Rodrigo has had his say, as we've seen above, Brabantio's response is instructive. He immediately refers to a dream he has had, and that's found in line 140 to 141. This accident is not unlike my dream. Belief of it oppresses me already. And here we have the greatest and arguably the most dangerous monster of them all, the imagination. Just as Brabantio recalls the dream he was having and conflates it with um, the scandalous news that has just been shared with him, Shakespeare establishes the pattern and the method by which, by which Iago will undo all of his victims throughout the play, especially uh, Othello himself, of course. It is not just Iago's um, lewd and provocative taunts, nor Rodrigo's whining complaints that have convinced Brabantio that something is wrong. No, it is the workings of his own mind the power of his own subconscious. At the moment he starts to believe and to seek truth, he calls out for light, as if to awaken from his own sleepiness, his own ignorance as a father. Throughout the play there are dozens of references to the workings of the mind, what characters believe, what they think, what they understand to be true. And Iago's most monstrous ability is the way he manipulates and plays with his victims' thoughts to such an extent that they no longer are able to trust themselves, what they think and believe, nor, most importantly and shockingly, what they see. So to conclude, this first scene is of vital importance to the play, not just because of the narrative excitement of the charivari, the linguistic thrill and the sexual insults, the duplicity and the intrigue, nor even for the monsters that begin to appear in our midst. It's the way that all of these elements coalesce and come together in the orbit of one character, Iago, and his evil magnificence. And the best bit of all, he doesn't even try to hide it. For as he says to Rodrigo, as he dips his hand into Rodrigo's purse once more, I am not what I am. <laughs>